110,000 jobs to go when JobKeeper ends and thousands pushed into poverty. Royals get the ratings and encourage unionism. Mars going 100% renewable and the Harlequin Toad back from the brink. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison coming to you from the spare room of the house because <laughs> Van Batten, who is joining me, is joining me once again from Wagga. Oh, it's beautiful. The kangaroos are out, the beautiful eastern greys. And it turns out that the Riverina is in the middle of a mouse plague. So that's been very interesting, Ben, as I'm sure you can imagine. Few few mice around the house. What's the scoreboard looking like now, Van? It's 6 0 uh, in favor of me. Uh, there is a mouse graveyard in my bin. I've got a whole routine down with the rubber gloves and all. So, hey, mouse, don't mess with me. <laughs> well, I have to say that Germanicus and I miss you very much, and we're very much looking forward to you coming home. I tell you what, I miss you, but I also miss Germanicus's amazing mouse killing propensity. <laughs> given what the the mice did get my avocados, they haven't got me, but they did get my avocados the other day. So, Germanicus, I miss you, buddy. I miss your little fangs. There you go. Well, you'll be back for the next week's episode, but this week we want to talk a bit about some of the economic news which has come about. Um, and the, there's a report from the Commonwealth Bank. It's been picked up uh, in, on news.com uh, yesterday and the Australian uh, as well this morning that 110,000 jobs will be destroyed when JobKeeper ends on March 31st. Oh, a bit of excellent A-grade Scott Morrison governing then. 110,000 jobs and all of the households that depend on those jobs. How fantastic. What superior economic management, Ben? It's it's just crazy, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the Morrison government response to this and Josh Frydenberg as treasurer, his response to this, this forecast is to say, well, people need to go out and spend more money. You know, he's, he's trying to say that uh, too many Australians have been putting money aside. Now, keeping in mind, Australia is one of the highest household debt nations in the OECD. That means that, you know, any money that people are putting away, they're really just paying down debt. Um, there's not there's not a lot of money floating around out there. You know, anyone who's walked down a, a, a local main street can tell you people are not, uh, they, there's not a lot in their wallets. There's not a lot to come out. No, and you and I noticed in the small town where we live is that at the height of the pandemic response, when the higher rate of job seeker was being paid and job keeper was being paid, there was a lot of economic activity. Like after the initial shock of the pandemic and the lockdowns, uh, the local economy where we live bounced back because the government were pursuing traditional Keynesian strategy, which is in a period of, um, of in a period of retracted economic activity, government pumps money into the economy, usually by creating jobs, but also increasing welfare payments, and that's what keeps the wheels turning. And of course, these guys are only they're only fair weather Keynesians, unfortunately, uh, and we are now in a situation where the money is being sucked out, but they're not replacing that investment with job creation. So what, what you would do in this kind of crisis if you were a responsible government is that you would have started planning a year ago for, for the, these ructions in the economy, mm. that you would have kept the wheels turning with welfare payments and you would have spent the past year going, 
all right, it turns out we're in the middle of a climate emergency. What's a bunch of stuff that we can do? What's infrastructure that we can build to make our economy resilient, to meet our climate targets, to, to bear the economic responsibility of all these things we have to do? And of course, there are heaps of things they could have done. They could be building wind and solar uh, infrastructure. They could be increasing the number of electric vehicle superhighways. My God, they could even restart the Australian car industry with uh, a government car company building electric vehicles for Australian terrain. They could be looking at revegetation or reforestation or, you know, clean water management, fixing up some of our rivers. It's not like there isn't work to do that no one is going to do apart from the government. But they didn't do that. Now they're taking the money out. We know that the changes to JobSeeker are going to leave people worse off overnight, even though this is being sold to everybody as an increase. It will literally be less money than the day before. And the gears in the economy are going to jam up again. Well, this is this is what really just shocks me is that when COVID hit, you know, there was all this fanfare about this panel of experts that Morrison was setting up and they were looking at what from the, the gas industry and the coal yeah, industry. Yeah. Well, that's right. And 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 now, you know, there's been reports as well that have come out, um, some good investigative journalism that is that has found that there's millions of dollars going into um, consultancy fees looking at how to support the gas industry while at the same time you know the Australian Institute has has also said that the, the the gas industry is a really poor provider of jobs so the numbers here from from memory are you know for every sort of um, for every million dollars you spend in the gas industry you create something like 0.2 jobs and for every million dollars you spend in health or education you create 10 jobs you know and we've just got nothing from the Morrison government they're, they're really it's really bizarre to see them reacting now as though this isn't something that they've created you know as, as though the pandemic is is new or that the 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 deadline for the cuts in these payments isn't something they've created as though, oh, well, now we've got to come up with a response. You know, they're scrambling around trying to announce stuff about apprenticeships, which frankly is, is just so hollow. Apprenticeships take two or three years. They're saying they'll give people 12 months of funding. You know, again, it's this sort of short termism of the Morrison government. And as you say, nothing about um, how we're going to make the transition to climate change, uh, nothing about how we're going to support workers whose coal-fired power stations, for example, just today we've seen announcements that they're going to close earlier, nothing that says we're going to create new industry in the places where it's needed, for the workers who need it, for the communities who need it. And what are they doing? They're taking money out. Can I, can I just say on the job, the job seeker issue that you raised as well, the, the Senate heard evidence in the last, within the last week that the cut, because it is a cut, you're right, will leave 85% of job seekers living below the poverty line. Oh, it's outrageous. And I've been writing about this. I had a piece in The Guardian recently about what the impact of this is going to be and the increased amount of money that came with the pandemic to JobSeeker. And let's be really honest about why they increased the money to JobSeeker because a lot of people who might be traditional swing voters or even Liberal voters lost their job. And if they had any idea just how 
horrific it was to be on the established doll on what has been paid all these years that has not gone up in 20 years there would have been there would have been riots that the government would have fallen so they created a political buffer for themselves by increasing the rate of job seekers so people didn't think being on the doll was so bad well now the economy is starting to pick up again and the vaccines are out there they don't need that political buffer anymore and it's back to punishing the unemployed for being unemployed i mean that's where we are And it is just, it is outrageous. It's the lack of planning that just does my head in because other economies are moving ahead. Biden is going like a steam train in the US. The EU and Britain take all the climate pressure there under really seriously. Even the Conservative government of Boris Johnson, hardly a landmark incompetence, Mm. given Mm. that whole, you know, Brexit and eat out to help out everybody get coronavirus, lie back and think of Britain while you're on an oxygen um, feed. Even the Johnson government is looking at the kind of transition strategies we've been talking about in Australia forever. And this is the thing, the coal-fired power stations are closing because it's in the economic interest of the operators for them to close. Yeah, that's right. Like the world economy is moving on. And you get this attitude from the Morrison government that government is about uh, limited windows to make your friends and donors as rich as possible. And that's really all government is. Government's about, well, there's this window to give heaps of money to the gas industry. So that's what we'll do. There's a window for us to pump some money into some coal investors. So that's what we'll do. And always this expectation that the problems can be solved by a Labor government down the track and that Labor can pick up the slack when they're next in government and make all the hard decisions and do the kind of, you know, investing and building and hard policy work. Because all this government does, all the Liberal Party has done for years is just walk away from nation building, walk away from planning and just operate the machines of either ideological grievance, punish the unemployed, you know, tear down statues of women, like take money from the arts, you know, these petty sort of culture war fights that they pick under this, you know, rubric of neoliberal purity and, you know, that it's just all about markets and the economy Mm, and mm. and taking all the brakes off but really it's a grift it's a grift for them it's a grift for their family businesses it's a grift for the donor class that they all hail from and it's out it's outrageous liberal party wasn't always like this like back in the day even the Menzies government, and I never thought I would live to say this, even the Fraser government had that commitment to keeping Australia intact, in keeping the mm. welfare system intact, keeping jobs intact. The Menzies government and the Liberal governments that followed up until Fraser, they were committed to full employment policy and, and put the money into the infrastructure uh, spending that we needed to maintain full employment. And that was part of the the mission. Obviously, ideologically very different to Labor, and I will never get over the, the Liberal Party of Menzies campaigning against modern art as a communist plot. <laughs> but, but but this is full the employment, thing. right? <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's yeah, but it's but there was full employment. And Morrison, I don't hold the hose, mate. I don't create the jobs, mate. I don't really take any action, mate. I do get photographed at the footy, though. And every week it goes by. We we are in a crisis, like we're in a pandemic crisis, an environmental crisis, an economic crisis, and he actually seems to be doing less as the weeks go by. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. And and the RBA governor has... It was asked, I saw this just today, just before we came on, so um, you, you may not have seen this, but the RBA governor um, was asked uh, 
um, do, does does the asset bubble asset price bubble keep you awake at night? And his response was, as much as anything keeps me awake at night, it's the social and economic impacts of unemployment and what that will do to Australia in the medium and long term. You know, you've got an RBA governor who who is a monetary theorist, who is from that old neoliberal school, if you like, who is more concerned about unemployment than, than Morrison really is. Because the, the reality is, as much as they'll talk about their IR-omnibus bill getting jobs back into the economy and all Which the is it, not true. And not every, true. every statistical and evidence-based analysis has said that it's not true. We know that well, it's not true. It's just counterintuitive, isn't it? You don't create more jobs by making it easier to sack people. Like that, you know, it, it, how does that create more jobs? Oh, well, we can we can chew through people more quickly. So, yeah, okay, yeah, you can create 10 jobs when really there's only one. Okay, sure, but that's not real, is it? So I'm sorry, weren't we told that cutting penalty rates was going to create yeah, all these jobs? Exactly, exactly Where did right. those jobs go, Ben? Because I, I seem to recall we were told in no uncertain terms that all these jobs would be created, and yet that conversation seems to have gone dark. I would have thought if that was such a job-creating strategy that the Liberals would be broadcasting it from the hills, but we're losing another 110,000 jobs jobs when JobKeeper is taken away. Brilliant. Fantastic. And that's on top of the almost 2 million Australians who are still unemployed or underemployed. You know, this is, you know, I take your point before, you know, the increase in job seeker payments during the pandemic was a political response. And it was a response born out of the fact that the, the Morrison government started to see huge queues at Centrelink. You know, don't forget, they didn't want JobKeeper at all. They didn't want any kind of wage subsidy. Well, you and I remarked at the time they were fighting the trade union movement. Sally McManus was out beating the drum going, there has to be some sustenance for people. There has to be investment in protecting jobs. And they were refusing. They were outright refusing to do it until their political image was threatened because it's all about image with these guys. And, and the real awful element to this as well, just, just to touch on, is that there are companies who have had record profits in the pandemic. Like, and I'm looking again at Harvey Norman because they've oh come God. out and said they will not return the JobKeeper payments that they have, you know, some 40 million, I think it is, in JobKeeper payments um, because they don't have to. And Morrison has said he won't make them. So, you know, he, as you said, he's happy to have largesse for the donor class and Harvey, you know, um, uh, Harvey. Jerry Norman. Harvey. Jerry Harvey's been out buying racehorses Australia. So, you know, yeah. if you're one of those people who's going to lose their jobs, if you're one of the 110,000 who is going to be completely financially screwed by the changes to JobKeeper, just remember Jerry Harvey is keeping the money and buying some racehorses. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe send Jerry Harvey uh, a, a note thanking him um, for investing in in racehorses, for taking taxpayer money and putting it into racehorses. Horses, you know, feel feel free, feel free to leave a message on on uh, the Harvey Norman uh, Facebook page. Of course, be respectful. I, I'm not encouraging people to do anything um, outrageous or illegal or abusive. Um, but, you know, it, I think it's important that these corporations understand that the behaviour of their owners, and Jerry Harvey is the majority uh, shareholder, um, certainly the, the major shareholder, uh, have 
have repercussions for the corporate image. You know, I'd, like, I'd just like I just like to be really, you know, really clear that I don't shop there. I'd never shop there. Like, just that's not a brand that I want to buy into or reward with my custom. Yeah. And in a capitalist system where our opportunities to revolt against these people are often limited to market transactions, that's one market transaction I'm just not going to make. Fantastic. So, look, there's lots of lots of things going to happen, I think, in the next few weeks uh, around JobKeeper, JobSeeker, um, the, the economy is in a very strange place. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, the RBA governor, there's all sorts of sort of weird financial market things happening. But I think it's important for us and our listeners to really focus on the real economy. Mm. Um, the, the financial markets are a, you know, they're, they're a mystic stream. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Harvey buying racehorses is not actually an indicator of economic health. Exactly. You know, it is an indicator well of capitalist largesse and it is disgusting. Well put, well put. Look, moving on to more capitalist largesse in a way, uh, you know, this week has become really, really all about the royals to some degree. And frankly, Australia's obsession with the royals continues. The, the, the Oprah Winfrey interview with Harry and Meghan um, was great television. Well, it, it was broke, great TV. It, it Well, yeah, clearly great TV because it broke the stranglehold that Seven News has had on the ratings uh, in Australia uh, and has has topped the ratings by some 30%. You know, people in Australia loved that interview. They tuned in in massive numbers. And I have to say, I, I watched the Canberra bubble uh, on that night and, uh, and the the Royals interview got more than double the audience, which, you know, look, that's, that's where people, people are at. People are interested in the Royals, you know, and I'm, I'm very pro-Republican, but I have to say it is, it is a fascinating soap opera, isn't it? Well, the soap opera has really, it has blown up a number of issues which are in the contemporary conversation anyway. Yeah. Um, obviously I'm no fan of the British monarchy and given the fact that, you know, their, their global uh, brand of colonial racism was responsible for the immigration of my family from their homeland to this country, just like rather a lot of other people's families all over the world. So not a huge fan, and we certainly do not salute the Queen at family weddings. Um, but I've got to say, like, it, it's, it's an interesting conversation to follow. And I loved a piece that appeared in the Irish Times today. I will find the, the link for it and, and post it with this episode uh, where an Irish Times columnist described being Irish and living next to, um, well, he said like li- being the neighbour of a monarchy is like living in a street where your neighbour's really into clowns and talks about clowns all the time and has clowns in the windows and has everything painted like clowns. Except when you're Irish and it's the British monarchy, it's like living next door to somebody who's obsessed with clowns, but a clown also killed your grandfather. And that's the opening paragraph and it sort of goes on from there. And the the commentator made a really good point about how, you know, the, the monarchy is an outdated institution. 
if you devote any time to thinking about it, it is completely ridiculous. And one of the things that came out in the interview was Prince Harry saying that it it took meeting Meghan Markle for him to realise that his life was not normal or okay. And he actually used words like trapped and that he's had this sort of moment of going, oh, my God, what is this? Whereas his family, Prince Charles, Prince Andrew, they're all still trapped in it. And, of course, it's become this touchstone because of Meghan Markle's race. You know, Mm. she is a woman of colour. She is American. And one of those, one of the things that's come up in, that came up in the interview that Harry um, talked about and confirmed was that a member of the royal family had expressed concern to him about how dark the skin colour of their unborn child, Archie, was going to be. What kind of look would that be for the monarchy? And you can imagine, like, that's just an extraordinary conversation to have. Like most people, I just presumed it was Prince Philip, but apparently Oprah has since confirmed it was neither Prince Philip or the Queen. But this kind of, like, gross racism that saturates that institution. And what people are saying is, like, what do people think the British monarchy is about? Like, we're talking Mm. about a hereditary elite institution, which is entirely about inbreeding. Like, that's... That's what it's about. If you have this title and power because of, like, who your parents were and, and what family you were born into, like, the assumption of assumptions of that are deeply racist. Of course they are. Oh. And the fact that Meghan Markle, like, spoke up, she talked about the fact that there was all of this racism that was saturating coverage of her in the British press. She felt isolated. She felt that the royal family should have had her back because she had married into that family. They were her family. And being part of that family put these conditions on her life and how she could live her life and how she could work. You know, this became it. And they didn't help her. Like, they abandoned her. And she was going to like HR at the palace going, I need help. And people were like, well, we can't help you. Well, oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? And it's a reminder too that HR is not there to help you. HR is <laughs> like, it's not. HR no, is it there is to not. Help you like yeah. that's what HR is for. And, and she even said, you know, in my old job, there was a union and they would protect me. And a lot of unions, you know, in the English speaking world in particular have sort of latched onto this and, and, and kind of taken a bit of a, a, a pseudo royal endorsement from Meghan Markle, um, which I can understand because, you know, it, I think for a lot of people, they would expect that, yeah, HR is there to help them. And if you're the Duchess of Sussex, then there's going to be all this institutional support when you feel besieged and, um, you know, and your mental health is compromised. Um, but the reality is those, those institutions are not there to support individuals. Unions are made up of individuals supporting each other. And that's why unions are there for you. Like it's a, it's, it's such a, it should be such a light bulb moment for the sort of 40 or 50 million people who've watched that interview that I really hope it does make people understand that that's actually a real thing. And, and the, the racism element is just so, it seems to be so entrenched. I saw a couple of polls online. You and I both follow quite a lot of British polling stuff on Twitter van and, and the support for the queen and and even prince philip and the rest of the royal family is all still very very positive like the queen i think is getting 85% support only 15% negative and this is after the uh, interview but meghan markle is at 49% negative and 41% positive like there's there's you know this is 
this is a real kind yeah, of... Yeah, but that's in England. That's not in yeah, America. that's what I mean. That's and, that's, and that's one of the interesting things that's come out of the interview is that left and right in America are backing Meghan Markle. Yeah. And so Meghan McCain was on The View the other day and she was and she's obviously John McCain's daughter. She's a very well-known conservative commentator in the United States. And she was like, this vindicates the American experiment. You know, this is why monarchy is wrong. And I was like, yeah, I'm agreeing with Meghan McCain and that's a bit weird. You know, like it's it's really interesting. But one of the points that the Irish commentator made was like there are people who are going, oh, Harry and Meghan, they're so disgusting. You know, they're, they're selling out for Spotify and Netflix deals. And people were like, that means they're getting jobs. That means they're actually working for an income. They're selling intellectual property and labour in order to um, to be paid for it, which is not what the monarchy does. Like, yeah. and, and this hilarious position where people are like, oh, it's disgusting that they're working for money when the royal family just, they're, they're parasitic tax sucklings, guys. Like, I can't put it. it, it the Queen, I'm, I have heard, is a very pleasant person with immaculate manners, as one would expect, has some great frocks and, you know, has been keeping a jewellery industry going for years. But who do you think pays for that? Like, yeah, that's, that's not, they're not running Queenie Industries. Like, she's not renting out the jewels. She doesn't have an Etsy site. Like, this is a tax fund. This is a tax taxpayer-funded um, enterprise. And living in Britain, like I lived in Britain for 10 years, you will see some of the most terrifying poverty you will ever see in your life in Britain. You will see homelessness that chills the blood of any Australian, you know, and absolutely horrific intergenerational poverty, like entire communities of families who have no breaks and no opportunities. And this British class system, which the royal family exemplify, which is rigid, which is racist, which is totally oppressive and built into that culture. And yet that system is funded by the taxpayer. Like, and so I'm a thousand percent Meghan Markle. Like, I do think royals should work for a living. And and this is the point, you know, doing a Netflix deal, that's progress. That's huge progress for these people. Well, as you know, Van, we, we, we watched a bit of The Crown, uh, in particular when your mum uh, was with us over Christmas. And just... <laughs> yes, I'm sure the neighbours heard all the comments. This well, is outrageous. This makes me disgusted. All of this should be collectivised. I'm, was... I'm, I'm glad to see Harry and Meghan taking my advice and getting a job. As I know, I would right? on the TV, get a job, get a job. You know, like it's a good... It, they should be nationalising the British wealth, uh, the, the, the British uh, monarchy's wealth. You know, they're talking about putting up taxes and cutting services and all sorts of things over there at the moment. And, and this is one of the wealthiest um, hereditary monarchies in the world. Like, oh, the art collection, the land, the jewellery, all of that stuff. Well, it doesn't go don't... back to the taxpayer. Like, it actually belongs to that family. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty outrageous. Um, look, I also want to say that I think uh, some some people in Australia. I am a paid up member of the Australian Republican movement, by the way. As um, am I, and yeah. we are proudly, and we encourage everybody else to That's, join the Republican movement. Absolutely, and it was good to see Turnbull and many other people come out and say, um, "Well, you know, this this is just further evidence that we need to be a Republican Australia. Why? Why do we have why is a self parasites? Yeah, yeah, parasitic tax sucklings." Why on earth are they our heads of state? 
people who literally turn around to members of their own family and say, we're a bit concerned about how dark the baby's going to be. They don't represent Australia. They don't represent this country or this culture or the community that we're from. My God, like that is just so desperately gross. And yet at the structure of our constitution, we're a constitutional monarchy. That is the description of Australia that you will read in any encyclopedic article. That's the basis of our system of government. Are you crazy? Who elected these people? Who do they represent? No one, nothing. They're just the accumulation of colonialism, imperialism and invasion. It's disgraceful. They do a very good, really good job of representing the uh, old House of Battenberg, uh, you know. <laughs> but anyway, you're absolutely right. Look, let's have some good news because there's a bit of good news that we can talk I got, about. I really got a bit guillotine there, didn't I? Got a bit guillotine Hey, look, I don't blame you. It's, uh, it's a very weird thing in this day and age to think that, you know, someone can be born to rule over an empire that uh, stretches from one side of the world to the other and be really a really racist turd about it too. Anyway. <laughs> Some good news. Some good news. There's some uh, good news. There's, there's good news about there's good news about Mars, Ben. Yes. So Mars is going to go 100% renewable now. And, and we mean Mars, the chocolate, not the planet. Different. Yeah, Don't get them confused. That it gets really <laughs> ugly. <laughs> well, I think at the moment Mars, the planet, is technically 100% renewable uh, anyway. <laughs> Give capitalism time, Ben. If Elon Musk is going up there, I'm sure it'll be a disaster like everywhere else pretty soon. But in Victoria, uh, Mars, the chocolate maker, has uh, announced a deal with Kiamal Solar in northwest Victoria, a power purchasing agreement, which allows them to buy the electricity that the um, solar project is creating to put straight into the grid. Um, And the Climate Council has endorsed these sorts of agreements, saying they reduce electricity emissions, they help new projects get over the line, uh, and it does mean that the chocolate maker in Victoria will be 100% renewable. Now, globally, of course, uh, is a different story when it comes to Mars, and they're aiming to get to 67% uh, reduction in their global emissions by 2050. We, of course, would want more than that, and we, we encourage them to get more than that. But it, it also encourages, it reminded me, and, and you reminded me earlier, that one of our favourite biscuit makers uh, here in Victoria has done a similar thing as well, right? Yeah, the fantastic cookers, country cookies, which as anyone who's uh, seen us bear our midriffs know, we are great patrons of, uh, they ha- they power their factory, which is in Donald in regional Victoria, with renewable energy. They're an amazing business to support. Um, the cookies are absolutely off the chart and obviously they supply as much as they can in their supply chain from local farmers and, uh, you know, really great business. Um, but, yeah, obviously... This is, this is another reason why I get really frustrated with the Morrison government, right? So we're constantly given this, this rhetoric of, oh, well, you know, um, the thing about climate uh, climate action is it'll wreck the economy. Like, what about the impact on business? What's the point in having a clean planet if we've got no money and everybody's gone broke and is unemployed? It's like business is doing it anyway. Yeah. Like, business have the capacity to make these decisions. Mars is a massive, massive company. And they are in a position to make these transitions. And there's a story that that's like like a you know one of the great narratives of the environment movement that talks about um, 
the the difference between the Germany and America when it came to acid rain in the 1970s. So because you are slightly younger than me, Ben, slightly, Mm -hmm. you may not remember the acid rain crisis, but I think it's uh, sulfur dioxide. Yes, sulfur dioxide. Yeah, a particular byproduct of various chemical processes was being pumped into the air as an emission in the 1970s. And it was forming clouds that were acidifying rain and the rain was falling basically as a defoliant and wiping out trees and causing all of these horrific problems now in germany it was affecting the black forest and you know like obviously very important mm. to the the national image national psyche and, and the germans yeah and the germans went right um companies have until this date in however long to get to get this process out of their production that and that's it and if you don't we're just going to shut you down in the United States, they were like, right, we're going to set up a cap and trade and people can buy credits and we're going to apply a market mechanism to all of this, blah, blah, blah. Within five years, the Germans had completely eradicated the acid rain problem because government had demanded that business innovate and they did. The United States was st- had only achieved a 40% reduction because they didn't regulate it. They brought in this complicated sort of market mechanism at which point the German process was so much more efficient and obviously nobody was getting sued for acid rain damage to car paint, which is usually what brings pollution undone. And the Germans sold the technology back to the United States. They created a new industrial standard. And this is the thing when we talk about renewable energy, like when governments regulate, corporations who want to stay in business suddenly find the resources and the motivation and the energy to make that process efficient. That's literally how we improve industrial production. So for Morrison and the rest to be like, you know, what about business? It's just like. Well, the the, the really crazy thing about Morrison's uh, argument as well is that Australian business, so the Australian Industry Group, um, the Australian aluminium manufacturers, uh, you know, high energy consuming um, business and corporate uh, bodies, uh, and the National Farmers Federation, and the ACTU and trade union movement, and the environment groups have have all endorsed uh, policy positions that would get us to uh, net zero. And, and called on the government to take real action to do this kind of work. And yet Morrison still kind of goes, oh, well, what about business? And it's like, mate, business is saying to you, hey, we, we just need you to get out of the way here. We need you to stop messing around with these policy settings that maybe make it more profitable to have more high polluting things so that we can get on and do the work. Like it's, it's, it's like we used to invest in science in this country. Like the CSIRO was the pride and joy of the Australian state. Like the CSIRO was responsible for so many like globally transformative technologies you know, and, we're using it right now. Yeah, and uh, Wi-Fi, lasers, you know, fibre optic cable, like these unbelievable things that we did because we invested in science in this country, highly literate, highly educated population, stability, you know, no civil war, like a healthy welfare state, all of these things went to driving genuine, genuine like invention, not just innovation, which is about making things, improving things, you know, finding mm-hmm. new ways to improve things, but invention, inventing new things. And of course, all these years of Liberal government, it gets chipped away and chipped away and, oh, the market will do it. 
the market will do it. And it's like, if we, we, we can actually resource the corporations that are there, if you insist on living in a capitalist economy, let's make it a capitalist economy that actually works for people. Like, Ugh. Radical, radical. I know, I know. It's oh. completely crazy, you know. Well, look, more good news because we keep we keep veering off. <laughs> off I'm, I'm just it's being away from you, Ben. I'm just angry at the world, and it's also oh. the mice because they are keeping me awake at night time. I can hear yeah, them. I, I can hear, hear them. Um, but, <laughs> but the, I was talking about uh, toads. You know, yeah, the harlequin toad is back from the brink. Tell us about that. So the harlequin toad is uh, from Central America. It is a beautiful looking little creature, a beautiful amphibian. It is definitely a toad, not a frog. And um, they've got just lovely patterning, but they're extremely rare, these these creatures. And, of course, they are on the endangered list. Um, cometh the hour, cometh the Manchester Museum in Britain, where they have they've pioneered a breeding program, um, which is like world's best practiced herpetology, which is about frogs and toads, not about herpes. Um, and the herpetologists have been working out how they can breed and hopefully reintroduce these toads. And it's so interesting. Like this is why we invest in science and museums mm. because we don't know things until we engage a scientific process. And what they found out was that obviously this toad is threatened by habitat destruction, but rebuilding habitat is actually a lot more intersectional than people really understood. So they were sort of replicating these environments that the toads were living in. It wasn't quite working. And it's been painstaking research for the past three years. And they worked out that breeding conditions for the toad are not just about replicating the plants and replicating the sort of water level. It's about things like the temperature of the water. It's about things like the amount of light that they receive is actually... Um, all of these really subtle environmental cues are, inc- are the nature of habitat. Like I said, the intersectional and holistic systems. So, and it was also the speed at which, because they breed in water, mm. it was the speed at which the water was flowing. And all of these different elements have gone into creating a comprehensive habitat understanding that they have been able to replicate and they can breed these toads back from the brink. And of course, you know, these amazing creatures around the world contain like, you know, properties and environmental, um, they make environmental contributions that we only understand if we study them, you know, things that go wrong in environments can often come down to losing a certain species here or there. And understanding just the detail of of that habitat is absolutely crucial to to our own survival so it is amazing what they've done um you can check out the manchester museum they've they're running like an adopt a frog uh program so you can sponsor this stuff that they're doing and it's it's really quite amazing and and gives us all hope that we may not lose these species forever if we put the work in to actually understand uh, their environments and how they function within them and how we can function around those environments as well fantastic well van that's a really great uh, positive note i think to to end this week's episode on um I just again, I want to shout out to everybody who's been in contact this week, and thanks again to everyone for the for your patience. Uh, still, big listener numbers despite our 
our delays. Uh, it's a bit it's a bit tricky stuff. from Wagga, the technology. We're not quite on top of the technology yet, but our friend Nathan is helping us. And thank you, Nathan Pippen. He's been fantastic. Yeah, I'd also you. like to thank uh, my buddy Marcus Paul from 2SM, who had me on his morning show. He does the drive show in New South Wales. Yeah, and He's, um, he, uh, you know, he's pro uh, Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge, when I'm definitely uh, pro Meghan Markle, Duchess of Sussex. So there's a division. You know, we don't have to, you know, have everything in common. But I really appreciated the chance to go on his show and talk to his audience. And if you're in New South Wales and want a bit of, you know, like a, you want a bit of an aggressive progressive in the morning, um, Marcus Paul, yeah. 2SM, have a listen. Yeah. And don't forget to share this episode on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, wherever wherever you engage with social media, wherever you talk to people, share share these words, share these ideas, have the conversation. Come back and let us know. Someone, uh, an old friend of mine, got in touch to say that uh, he and his uh, partner listen in Germany because they can't get Australian news over there. And they really enjoy it. So shout out to George, uh, to to George and uh, his partner. Guten Tag, George Vigates. <laughs> so, yeah, um, thanks again, everybody. Um, love you, Vanny. Yeah, you almost forgot. You do love me, and I love you too. <laughs> oh, love Look you after the dog. I will. Bye. Bye. Bye.